and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman, and today I'm talking to a man whose calves must be made of steel. A few weeks back, I interviewed a guy, Spencer Conway, who had circumnavigated Africa by motorcycle. I didn't know then if anyone would top it. I think Mario Rigby has. Mario spent two years, 26 months, walking over 12,000 kilometers from Cape Town to Cairo. He walked through eight countries, kayaked 550 kilometers crossing Africa. He nearly drowned, he was shot at, he was arrested seven times, all just trying to get from one end of the continent to the other. He says he did it to challenge himself and to experience everything there is to humanity. I caught up with him safe and sound back home in Toronto after a long two years. Here's his story. So you were a personal trainer beforehand. Was there a particular spark that got you thinking about doing the trek across Africa? Was there a, is it a conversation? Was it watching somebody else do something? Uh, why did you do this? Yeah, uh, Martin, actually this started probably way before, even a few years ago, like I've always just kind of wanted to explore and I wanted to go on adventures. My father, my stepfather, he's in the military. He was in the military and he would always show us pictures, me and my brother, of him going on these crazy adventures where he's like basically holding down a crocodile and he's like, you know, skiing down the sand dunes. <laughs> and you can imagine like how cool that must have been for you know, a son looking up to his uh, dad and like looking at, at, at all these adventures. So it's always kind of like in my blood to to experience that. And yeah. I think for the longest time, I just never tapped into it. And one day I just kind of, you know, my mind just unleashed and I said, you know what, I have to do this. I'm going to do this no matter what. And I'm just going to sacrifice anything and everything to be able to make this uh, a reality. Uh, you grew up in, in Turks and Caicos, or, or at least were born there. How how long were you there before you moved for the first time? So I was born in Turks and Caicos, but I moved at the age of one. I moved to Germany, yeah. and I lived there for quite some time. And then I moved uh, back to Turks and Caicos at the age of 11. Uh-huh. So that's nearly a decade in Germany. And yeah. then after that, I lived in Turks and Caicos for about five years. And then we eventually migrated. And we, I mean, my mother, my brother... And myself, we migrated to Canada, where we just basically spent the remainder of our lives. So you, you've gotten this sense of, of seeing new places uh, from a very early age already. This this desire maybe sparked within you to see different parts of the world. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so from making this plan to you're going to walk across Africa, you know, 12,000 kilometers to actually... Yeah getting on a plane and, and going and doing it. Uh, what what kind of preparation were you doing beforehand? I mean, being a personal trainer, I imagine you are you were a pretty fit guy before. What kind of stuff were you doing to make sure that you were going to be ready when this was going to begin? Well, I quickly learned that, you know, being fit isn't exactly the, the strongest point um, <laughs> requirement for these kinds of expeditions. It's more about willpower. Right. Um, and as well as, you know, survival and people skills. These are probably the three most important aspects to doing something like this. And, um, you know, I started small. I, I've never, by the way, camped or backpacked in my entire life. Before, so, before this. <laughs> before this, oh, yeah. I've, I've never, never done anything like this before. So this was, this was really going out the way. <laughs> yeah. I actually started by uh, pitching my, my, my camp. I, I remember I bought a tent 
Uh-huh. That's like the first thing I bought. I bought a tent and I had like just a regular backpack and I decided to go to like this big park in Toronto. Yeah. Um, and you're not allowed to camp in the park, you know, it's illegal. But uh, I decided, what the heck, I'm just going to go there. And I knew that today had to be the day. And unfortunately, that day it was like raining heavily. Uh-huh. It hasn't rained in forever. And all of a sudden it rained heavily. And the rain was just like moving sideways. And I still decided <laughs> to go with it. Because I figured, you know, they're going to be worse conditions. So uh-huh. I need to be prepared for that. Why am I going to chicken out in this scenario? So I decided to stick with it. And I learned for the first time of my life how to pitch my tent in the rain. So the first time I ever pitched my tent was in a storm. Where was that? High Park or was that a different Toronto park? Uh, High Park, yeah. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you did a walk from Toronto to Montreal, that was going to get you prepared for what you're going to experience in the in the years to come. So you you pitched your tent by now. I'm guessing you you've had that experience. Um, yeah. You've done a bit more training, and then you decide, okay, let me see what this is really about, and I'm going to walk from Toronto to Montreal. What did that teach you? Yeah, that taught me a lot because I did a practice run from uh, Toronto to Hamilton, which is about 70 kilometers, mm-hmm. and uh, I decided to go at it one shot. Um, I was wearing completely the wrong kind of shoes. I had the wrong backpack. Everything was wrong. And it took me about 15 hours. But because of this, Donna Foster, she's a endurance speed walking coach. Mm -hmm. She came up to me. She emailed me. She said, hey, Mario, uh, listen, I would love to voluntarily train you for this expedition. And I think if you do Toronto to Montreal, I think that would be a great kind of introduction to your expedition mm-hmm. to the world. And so she decided to join me for the first five days, and then I would continue on the, the next uh, week and a half on my own mm-hmm. from Toronto to Montreal. So how long did it take you? Um, yeah, that, that took me 15 days, 15 days. Um, but you were asking, what did I learn from that? Yeah. Definitely perseverance. Um, she overtrained me. She's, you know, uh, Donna made me wo- like we were walking on average uh, 45 to 60 kilometers in a day, wow. which is ridiculous. That is really <laughs> ridiculous. And how long is that taking you? How how many hours is that in a day that you're that you're uh, walking for? Oh yeah, you're easily doing um, 10 hours a day oh, on average. Jeez. Yeah. If you have a nine to five job, it's like imagine that, but longer and it's physical instead of like repetitive mentally. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, from your experience and your background, being in physical fitness, being a personal trainer to get into something like that, a wake up call or what, what, what did that uh, show you? <laughs> it, yeah, it was definitely a wake up call. You know, I, I was going through a lot of pain. I, I think there were times where I was like, kind of like screaming, yelling out loud. Because of the pain the pain was just really intense mm-hmm. and um you know donna just kind of like coached me through it she said this is the stage like within the first four hours you're gonna feel this way and the next six hours you're gonna feel that way and then you know she basically kind of coached me through that if it wasn't for that i probably would suffer tremendously in my first few days in africa okay so you end up making it to montreal things go yeah. okay that didn't go totally awry uh so you decide okay i'm gonna i'm gonna go through with this um you book a flight maybe you already had the flight booked i already had the flight booked. yeah, yeah. okay so you're committed <laughs> yeah i was definitely committed yeah so you're on the plane from toronto to amsterdam and then to cape town what what's going through your head as you set off thousands of feet up in the air about to start this trip 
I was thinking, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it became real. It became real as soon as I landed. And, you know, I've never been to Africa before. Mm-hmm. So to me, just to be in Africa was such a, an incredible experience. And you kind of forget what you're there for. You forget what you're, because you're so distracted by the, the music, the culture, the differences, you know, that mm-hmm. it didn't really bother me that much. Um, I think when it really hit me was the day before I left. To start walking. That's when I was, exactly, yeah, the yeah. first day, the, the day before. That's when it really kind of hit me hard. But luckily <laughs> I had, there was this Zimbabwean kid that I met the day before, I decided to just walk around Cape Town a bit downtown. Mm-hmm. And there were these two Zimbabwean uh, youngsters and they were talking about politics and things like that. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll, I'll introduce myself into their conversation. So I did. And they eventually asked me, okay, what, what are you here for? And I said, I'm doing this expedition, I'm walking across Africa. They were completely like astounded by that. They were just like, oh my God, what? That's crazy. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one kid, uh, Gilmore, he's ni- he was 19 at the time. He he asked me, "Can I join you?" And I said, "Absolutely." But you know, I'm gonna be waking up at 4 a.m., so you're gonna have to come join me right away. And if you're late, I I can't wait for you. Yeah. So he did that the next morning, and because again, because of him, it made my first day really enjoyable. That company, yeah, to have that. Because, I mean, otherwise, the, the plan is you're going to be by yourself, right? You're, you're going to be alone for this expedition. Exactly. Um, the, well, the other problem was that because I enjoyed this company so much, I was kind of like, you know, hoping for that kind of company again. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about because, um, uh, and I will never be able to, to fully <laughs> relate, obviously, uh, to, to walking across a continent. But I, I've rode a, a bicycle across Canada. And, oh wow, that's cool, man! And uh, and that's part of what part of what you know kind of draws me to your story is okay, knowing that you're gonna have some experiences that I felt, but it only amplified. I know <laughs> just how much it meant to have that company with me at times. I would have people that I would meet up with for you know a few hours or maybe a day, but when they're gone, exactly. it's almost as if it's almost like worse because it's like, well, <laughs> I felt so good when they were here, but now they're gone. Maybe it'd be better if I never even had that good exactly. in the first place. <laughs> I totally, totally get that. Yeah. Um, there and there was a lot of those moments, and it's uh, it, it kind of rips your heart apart a bit. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Yeah. So what what did you pack along with you? What everything in the backpack uh, that you're carrying on your back? You know what? Um, uh, I'm very embarrassed to say that um, the first day or the first time I came to Africa with my backpack, I had a machete and a whole bunch of weird survival stuff with me. Mm-hmm. You know unnecessary things like who carries a machete with them <laughs> that didn't give you problems uh, going going through customs or anything like that no well i had it um it wasn't a carry-on so yeah 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 right yeah i think they didn't scan it but if they had they scanned it it probably <laughs> would have been <laughs> yeah. were a questionable thing to bring along with you i even carry i think i had like maybe two two pocket knives and then like a like a big knife and then the machete i don't know it was just really unnecessary yeah. But it it wasn't it wasn't used for as a weapon. It was kind of because I thought I had to go through a lot of jungle and things like that. But right, you're going to be whacking our branches out of your way and exactly, and yeah, fending that was off clearly, animals. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I kept fantasizing like how what position I would put myself in if like a lion attacked me or something. But right, yeah. Of what course, was your... that didn't happen either. <laughs> <laughs> Did, what was your game plan if a lion was going to come? Did you play that out in your head of what 
what you would do? Absolutely. Like, I mean, if you run away, you're going to be prey. So you have to go and attack back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right. if you're going to go in, you go all in. I guess that's the plan. Yeah. So you were, I mean, with the exception of that first day, I mean, you, you knew going into it that you were mostly going to be alone for that experience. What was it like to be alone for hours on end as you're making your way across the continent? Or did you find that you were alone? Did, were you surprised at the people that you would meet uh, as you made your way along? I really was surprised at the people that I met, but there were times where I was, a week, I think the longest I've been alone was probably just over a week. Mm -hmm. um, that's along the wild coast in South Africa. And there are parts where there are just no people at all. And, um, yeah, that, you know what? I really learned how to be, like, kind of become my best friend in a sense. Mm -hmm. Like, I was very talkative in my head. You know, I, I never really had negative conversations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a way, I was surprised at how well I took that, actually. How comfortable were you to be by yourself to begin with? Like, going into this, are you, are you the type of person that was... In the past, you, you find being by yourself? Are you normally a, a people person wanting to surround yourself with other people? That's the thing. A lot of people see me as a people person. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I think I'm a people person. I love having company around. But I always say this. I always say that it's, you know, you feel loneliest when you're amongst a lot of people who you don't connect with mm -hmm. than if you're alone. I would rather be alone than be a, amongst a lot of people who I'm not really connected with in that sense. Right. Yeah, yeah. So you, you, anyway, it was going to be a new experience partially to be by yourself, but it wasn't going to be a, a total fish out of water experience. Exactly. But you know what? It was, it was, um, it was kind of like a fantasy fulfilled. Like, I mean, just to go out there and be rugged and just like kind of tackle the environment. I th it was so much fun. It was really a lot of fun. There were times where I would be walking and I'm just like laughing out loud for no reason. And I had such a great time. Mm. So long as I had food rations and water, I was good to go. That's all I needed. How were you feeding yourself as you were going along the way? So the basically they have snails along the coast everywhere. So this is how the Khoisan people basically fish. So I copy what they do. Mm -hmm. Also, they have these onion nets that are about as big as like two plastic bags in the size. And you just leave that overnight and you're hoping that maybe some prawns or um, uh, we call them lobsters, I guess. Mm -hmm. They go in there, they, they you know, because they like kind of garbagey food. And you just put a bunch of junk in there and they actually go inside and they're basically stuck inside. So you just eat that in the morning or you eat that for the for lunchtime. And so the snails, the prawns and the food rations that I had as well. So yeah. I had enough instant noodles you probably had that yeah, on okay your yeah bike journey. <laughs> uh no i didn't so. do the instant noodles but yeah i know i know what you mean <laughs> as you're walking along i mean you have this big backpack you got to be drawing stares from people as you're going into cities or towns w what what are kind of people how are they reacting to you as they see you usually what happens is they flock around me i mean again every village is quite different i never i have a sense of what's about to happen because of how people treat me before I get to the village. Hmm. Like maybe there's like a, a, a walker or someone who's just kind of going from one village to the next, kind of delivering whatever parcels and whatnot. And the way they treat you kind of gives you an indication of how people in the village will treat you. Right, or yeah. the prior village, if, if people in the village before you are hostile toward you, then 
maybe they will be hostile toward you in the next one, right? But, right, right. Uh, yeah. it's, 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 it's always quite different, but it's always interesting. <laughs> Typically, the way, the, the way I would do it is I would end up in the village. I would go to the town center and I sit down, I have a beer. And there's usually an alpha male or like the dominant male. Maybe he's a little bit tipsy or drunk and he'll come up to me, you know, the bravest one of them all. Uh-huh. And he'd be like, you know, like, uh, who are you? What are you doing here? What is your name? <laughs> and then right. you're just like, all right. Then you go through the formalities because you, typically I know how to say a few words, at least the introduction. Yeah. To okay. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever village I'm going to. And, uh, you know, like, I think people get kindness. They understand that, okay, this guy, he's just, he's just chilling and he's just kind of, he's a little bit crazy, but he doesn't mean harm. I think people can read this really well, no matter what culture, tribe, or whatever you're from. And so they sense that for me. And usually what happens is they would voluntarily just say, hey, listen, you can sleep over at my house, especially if you make them laugh. I mean, they love, it's so simple, you know what I mean? Like, just a little bit, like just maybe buy them a beer or, mm-hmm. you know, say a joke or, you know, touch their shoulder or something like that. And they just love that. And they're willing to do so much for you for so little. So you had to become a, a master in some sense of, I mean, constantly meeting new people day in and day out. And oh, it is constant. Yeah. Endearing yourself to these people. You have to, you have to kind of convince complete strangers to let you, a six foot four guy, a muscular six foot four guy kind of sleep in the home with his wife, children, and his uh, mother. Right, tough sell sometimes. It's a tough sell, yeah. I mean, it's worked surprisingly, like ninety nine percent of the time. <laughs> uh huh. How far were you walking in any given day on this trip? In Africa, I was averaging about twenty five to thirty five kilometers. Yeah. If I really wanted to push uh, distances, I'd probably clock around fifty kilometers. Oh my god. Those are like. Yeah, those are like my my desperate days. Like I need to, I need to get the hell out of this area. <laughs> so you're just burning through calories. Uh, how much how much do you have to eat to be able to, you know, just not to lose all of that weight as you're going across? You know, surprisingly, I actually ate quite a lot. I mean, again, it fluctuates between which countries you go through mm-hmm. and which villages you go through. It always fluctuates. Like in Mozambique, there were areas where I never, I couldn't even eat food. So I had to bring my own rations and then you had to be careful of how much you ate. And in the next like three days, a week, maybe you could, I feel that I'm getting too skinny. I'm getting too, too much muscle showing kind of thing. Yeah. So I would then try to like, overeat a little bit more so i kind of like i paid attention i went with the flow i never i never stuck with the system because if you stick with the system that's like unrealistic if you're in a place like africa Hmm. so south africa was first what do you remember most from from south africa what i remember the most actually and this is really it's a bit sad actually is the fact that all of the residential areas are just completely gated off with these electric fences I don't think I've met or seen one house in the Western Cape where the majority of the white South Africans live. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen one single house that was not electrically fenced. And it made me feel really isolated in a sense. Um, I went into these towns on the coast, like the beaches, and it's it's just all uh, white families. There's not a single... I have... There were times I haven't seen a single black person in like weeks. 
Yeah. And that surprised the hell out of me, really. Unless they were like workers or, you know, almost like slave-like conditions. So you're still seeing the effects of apartheid, basically, as, you, as you're walking across. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. It is so real. What came next for you after, after South Africa? Or what was the next length of your, of your journey? Yeah, then um, I crossed the border into Mozambique. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mozambique was, was, that was very refreshing. That was kind of like my first taste of the real Africa or the Eastern Africa that um, South Africa didn't really have. Mm-hmm. Like the, the roads were just non-existent. The animals were wild sometimes. Like, you know, I met like a wild, it wasn't a wild elephant, but it was like a protected park area. But they just kind of, push down the fence and walk across the road. Mm-hmm. They're not supposed to do that, but because there's no like kind of high investment or money into these projects, they don't really make these um, these areas kind of you know safe for animals. So you're in Mozambique. Things are going pretty well so far. You're making good progress. You have an experience where you find yourself uh, surrounded by gunfire. What happens? So... I walked toward this place called the Save River, which is the river that kind of splits Mozambique south and north in half. And uh, I was trying to walk across this border. Uh, it's, 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 basically, it's like this massive bridge that crosses over this river. And, um, you know, people warned me about it before, but everyone said, oh, it's no big deal, you know. There were some gunshots before, but nothing's happening now. That's how I thought it was. It wasn't a big deal mm-hmm. um, until I got really close. People, villagers, started saying they'll shoot you, <laughs> and uh, I still went because <laughs> I thought uh, people get scared all the time for no reason. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, as I was approaching, the military picked me up and they said, "Hey, man, there's no, absolutely no way you can uh, you can cross that border." And, you know, as they're like, you know, carrying the AK-47s, you're kind of intimidated in a sense. So I had to jump in the back of the truck. Uh, it held eight soldiers, six in the back, two in the front, blasting music out loud. And we're just like driving over 100 miles per hour just down this road. And you could see like cars on either side of you just burning, buses burning, trucks burning, villages wow. burning. It's just like so surreal. And it was just around dawn. So it was such an incredible, weird, kind of eerie feeling. It was, it was like this deadly silence, you know, other than the music. And, uh, yeah, so then all of a sudden we hear three gunshots, boom, boom, boom. And uh, the truck stops. Everything seems surreal. You're like, no way. This is this can't be happening. Mm-hmm. I was in Toronto not too long ago. This is crazy. And uh, then they started firing. Everyone got into position. Bullets are flying around, and I'm just basically in the back of the truck, cursing, swearing, going like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. Yeah. And then I realized like a minute later, okay, they could RPG this truck. So I jumped out and hid in the grass, and I did all of this while recording on my phone. Right. So you're thinking this, this could be it when this is going on? I thought to myself, like, I hope we win this battle <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because I know for sure they would probably execute me, yeah, for sure. So how do you get out of that? Well, so they neutralize the situation. Uh, that's their way of uh, saying, you know, we killed them off. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe there were a few rebels in the bush. I didn't witness that, though. Yeah. Uh, and then we just jumped back into the truck and we, we sped off. 
and they acted as if like like nothing happened. Like it was just a normal experience for them. It was mm. really surreal. So that was Mozambique. What what comes after Mozambique? What was next for you? Then it was Malawi. And as I approached Malawi, I looked at the map and I realized, okay, there's a lake that runs parallel up this country perfectly. Yeah. And it runs the whole length of Malawi. So I figured, why not kayak? Yeah. And everyone, of course, laughed at me because they said, Mario, you've never kayaked before. You have no experience. This is a suicide job. <laughs> And, and I thought to myself, you know what? I mean, if there's a bunch of people kayaking, then I think I can kayak. So how did that go? So I went to the, uh, a place called uh, Monkey Bay, which is in the southern part of Lake Malawi. Mm-hmm. And I started asking for kayaks. You know, I went to these shops. And, uh, of course, every single one of them said, you know what? Absolutely not. We can't risk this. You're doing, what you're doing is ridiculous. And we're not going to put our name into your failure. It was really rude. I mean, most of these mm. guys were actually South African-owned uh, companies. And uh, they were incredibly rude to me, not giving me this chance. So basically, I just kept you know, pushing, pushing, pushing. And eventually, there was these South Africans, uh, these white South Africans, yeah. who circumnavigated the lake already. And they said, hey, man, you can just borrow one of our kayaks. So just like that, easy like that. I met up with them. We had a bunch of drinks. We were completely hungover. <laughs> and the next day, they just gave me the kayak and they said, hey, man. And then I asked, okay, what's the best advice you can give me? And they said, honestly, just have a really good time. <laughs> so that's your first time getting in a kayak is, is you get this kayak from these two South Africans. How does it go on that first day? Honestly, um, pretty well. I mean, I was dying. Yeah. I didn't realize how hard it was. I, I was learning everything along because I'm a former athlete, so I kind of know how to pace myself yeah you know like don't go all in kind of thing so i was really testing myself for the first few parts and uh it's it was kind of a stupid idea to test myself out on the first day of kayaking because the distance to the next place was really far i think we're talking about 25 um, kilometers yeah in the lake (laughs) who's never experienced kayaking before so that was really that was intense yeah. I remember I docked my kayak uh, on this island one time and uh, what happened really amazed me. Um, I put my foot down in the water, like near the shore of this island, and at putting my foot back on the kayak, it was covered completely in leeches, like oh, tiny wow. little leeches. It was probably the most disgusting thing I've ever <laughs> experienced in my life. Like, I mean, I actually yelled out loud, as loud as I could. Yeah. And uh, I, it took me about an hour to get every single one of them off. Oh, jeez. So is that, is that the defining moment of Malawi? Or, or what do you uh, remember most from, from that part of the trip? What I remember the most is uh, the kind heart, the kindness. The, these people are incredibly sweet. Um, they're incredibly poor. They have almost nothing, and um, which is unfortunate. You know, their president uh, is not even from Malawi, and he doesn't even live in Malawi. He lives mm. in the United States, and uh, he's doing absolutely nothing for this country. Most of the money does not go like ch- like charity and aid does not go back to the people. Mm. Also, I was arrested in Malawi by the uh, police. Right, yeah, yeah. They said, I'm an African refugee or an African thief or 
spy or something. They just had all these different excuses, and uh, they definitely, yeah, they basically abused me by keeping the handcuffs on my on my hand around my wrist for three days straight. And uh, luckily, at that time, while I was kayaking, I had a friend, an Italian guy, who was walking. He was always three days behind. Yeah. And uh, he eventually caught up, and because of him, he just went to the jail and he said, this is my friend, you need to free him. And he just did, just like that. Were you able to let him know, hey, I'm stuck here? Or, or how did he no. know to they, come help They you took out? my phone, they took everything from me. Um, I had nothing. I couldn't even call anybody beforehand. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was, I was uh, completely screwed in that sense. But you know, I, was, I, I think I was suffering quite a lot because uh, the, just kayaking across his leg, I was just so exhausted that I wasn't even... I, I didn't even fight properly, you know, mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a verbal sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what happened was uh, Francesco, he's the Italian guy, he eventually arrived and everybody in the village knows, everyone in the town knows that there's this foreign black guy that's right. in jail and that never happens. That's, you know, first of all, there's no foreign black people that come to that part of Malawi ever. Yeah. I think the only foreign people they ever see is probably uh, missionary or first aid people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Francesco arrives and uh, they basically say, hey, we think that your friend is in jail. And so he runs down to the police station and he's, that's when he uh, basically tells them, hey, you need to free him. How are you handling border crossings as you're going from country to country? Are you ha did you have to sort out visas ahead of time? Are you showing up and having to basically sweet talk the border guards? Uh, how does it go for you? Yeah, you got to do a little bit of both. You have to do um, because you know the the rules are iffy, and uh, if they feel a certain way that day, you might or might not get into the country. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. Sweet talking is probably the one of the best skills, <laughs> as I mentioned before. <laughs> Did you get held up anywhere and have to wait, or or um, any any um, kind of close calls? It's, it's, it's worked every single time except for once in um, Ethiopia, as I was about to leave the border into Sudan. Hmm. Um, this woman, uh, yeah, she didn't accept my story. She didn't accept anything, so she took my passport away from me, which is you know you're not allowed to do that. And uh, she basically said, you can pick it up back in Addis Ababa, which took me like two, like a month to walk, to walk from there. Oh. And uh, so I had to do two days of taking a bus back. Luckily, there was a truck driver yeah. and he took me back there. And then I had to wait a week for the passport to arrive. And then I had to wait two weeks for the processing to happen. And then I had to pay them 200 something USD dollars. <laughs> Man. So they basically uh, completely took advantage of me in that sense. Yeah. And it's really it's really frustrating, you know. It's uh, still a little bit sour about that. Well, yeah, yeah, as as you would be. What what comes after Malawi? Um, after Malawi was uh, Tanzania. Tanzania was uh, a bit of a joyride. Tanzania and Kenya were two of the easiest countries to cross, actually. Mm -hmm. It was really enjoyable. I had... Halfway across Tanzania, I had this German girl and uh, Austrian girl who joined me. And then the Austrian, she had to leave after we arrived in, near the border of uh, Kenya, between Kenya and Tanzania. She left, uh, and then the German girl, she decided to continue with me across Kenya. And in fact, actually, she might actually be one of the first and only German girls that has actually walked across the entire country of Kenya. Hmm. 
so you're you meet these two how did you meet them in the first place uh tanzania is a place where there's a there's an island called zanzibar and i decided to camp there for a few months just yeah. to take time off because after getting shot at and really drowning in lake malawi and getting arrested yeah i thought maybe i should probably take a, a break yeah <laughs> and uh <laughs> yeah so i met them there and uh yeah we all clicked we had such a great time we were best friends and uh then they, you know, they asked, they said, hey, can we join? Is that possible? And I said, absolutely, let's do it. And so they joined and it was so incredible. It was nice to have company. What do you remember from, from Kenya and in that next leg of your trip? Uh, Kenya was mostly about guest houses. There's a lot of guest houses and mm-hmm. a lot of um, uh, sightseeing, which was really awesome. We saw giraffes in the wild. Like, it was really incredible. Um, wow. I remember a lot of walking with Charlotte. She's a German girl. And um, it was really quick, actually. I think Kenya was probably the quickest country that I crossed. It took only like a month and a half. Just the size of it and just the ease, you know, like being able, like the fact that there's a guest house every like 25 kilometers apart was made it quite easy. And Mount Kenya, of course, climbing uh, the second largest mountain in, uh, in Africa. So you, you get to Kenya, was that in the plans originally, or do you just kind of, you find out it's there and you just think, okay, might as well do this too? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, <laughs> a lot of the things were just like, go as you go. Yeah. Uh, what, was, what was the most physically challenging part as you're making your way across uh, Africa? The most challenging part about crossing Africa, physically, was probably climbing Mount Kenya. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh, I mean, the walking, honestly, the walking, um, it's more of a mental game than a physical. Like, yes, you hurt physically, yeah. but mentally it hurts even more because, you know, you, you get to a point where you're like, okay, you're walking, you think you've done six hours, and then you're like, oh, shit, but I have six hours left. So that, that's really more of a mental uh, mind game. But physically, I think it was Mount Kenya climbing that mountain. Yeah. Um, or Mount Malungi, which is in Malawi. I also climbed that mountain. Mm-hmm. It's the highest mountain in Malawi. And um, that was the first time I've ever climbed a mountain in my life. I did it all wrong <laughs> the first time. What was the most meaningful part of all this for you? I think the most meaningful part was definitely meeting these local people. Like That is just honestly one of the sweetest, most beautiful experiences that I had. And I, I would love to go back to Africa just to meet them again and just to see how they're doing. I mean, the fact that, you know, these, these guys, some of them, they just have nothing, like absolutely, absolutely nothing. And they give you like their last meal, like it's just it's incredible. Um, yeah, I miss them for, hmm. for their realness, you know, you miss the, the realness of, of the people. Like if they cry, they cry. If they're happy, they're happy. They show it to you. They don't hide anything. Take me to the moment you finally arrive, the end of your journey, you make it to Egypt. What is going to be your final destination? Is it reaching the Mediterranean? Is it uh, just what? It was what? actually, originally it was to reach the Mediterranean and I changed it. I, I short stopped it by stopping in Giza. Um, yeah. Because I wanted to see the pyramids. I thought the pyramids was the final destination. And honestly, at this point, I was over it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Near the end, like the last week was probably the hardest of my yeah. walks because, you know, walking was quite easy. It's just that I just didn't want to keep repeating 
going to these guest houses or pitching my tent. Yeah. And uh, you know the the hostile. It's very it's quite hostile in Egypt as well, especially being a black guy. They don't really accept the rest of Africa into their country, which mm. is quite uh, a hardship. Mm-hmm. And I'm quite dark too, so I might look like maybe I'm South Sudanese or something. But uh, yeah, I, I I was just ready. I was ready to just be done. And so I never. I decided no, I'm not going to do the Mediterranean. I'm just going to end uh, at the pyramids, which is, I think, 300 kilometers uh, north of the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What surprised you the most from these months? You know, the two years that you spent completing this. What surprised me the most was the fact that I even did it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what surprised me the most, other than that, was. Uh, I think again, was is the, the 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 kindness and the warm heartedness of Africans, especially in like Sudan. Sudan was incredibly um, heartwarming. Mm-hmm. Going into this, right, you're telling people you're going to walk across the continent. You know, you're going to hear people caution you in one way or another, warning you, saying to be safe here or be safe there. But yeah. knowing that and seeing something very differently. I mean, you do have those experiences of of you know getting arrested, and and you do mm-hmm. find yourself in some dangerous situations, but the, but the people along the way, by and large, are, are reminding you of, of uh, the other side of things, the things that people don't, you know, warn you about, or the things you don't hear about on the news, exactly. so to speak. Exactly. Well, really what happens is you become uh, a realist, you become, uh, you can become optimistic as well, because you can see potential. But you become very realistic. You become, you see the reality of the world. You see the reality of the people. Like you know, you can you can spot like bullshit immediately. It just mm. you just become like a, a bullshit spotter. Actually, <laughs> you just you know what's real. You know what's not real because it's part of your survival strategy right. to understand when people are tricking you or if they're being genuine. If right. you are being tricked, that is your that is your life. Um, it could just easily just stop your journey. Could just end like this, and your expedition would no longer um, it would cease to exist. So you really pick up on the bigger picture as well. You know, you see how things are coming together. You know, you realize you hear the voices of the Africans, the people who live in the villages, and then you hear the voices of the politicians. You hear the voices of policymakers, of NGOs, and all these people together because you're always mixed with all those people. Mm-hmm. You're attracted with all of them. And then you kind of hear all their voices and you kind of put it together and you're just like, then you start to like put a picture together, you know, and that's kind of like the grand scheme. What else did you learn from, from all of this, whether it was about yourself or just about the way that you know, the world was, uh, things that you, you learned from the experience? Yeah, um, I would say about myself, I, um, I mean, you, your confidence, of course, uh, you realize that anything is really possible. And I know people say that a lot, but when it becomes reality and when it's like true in a sense, where anything you touch or think of and you can make it reality, by pre-planning, by you know executing these steps to get there, mm. it becomes a very it, everything is possible, really, in a sense. So you have this kind of that's the the confidence I'm talking about. Mm. 
that's me personally about me uh, what I've learned but in terms of uh, humanity and all these kinds of things you realize how similar we all are and you know basically we all come from like the same fundamental background we have these needs we need food shelter water we need family friends love and then you know the hierarchy just keeps going up until we get to enlightenment and uh, you know the way that we get to enlightenment is basically it's very it's different for everybody but mm. the fundamentals are all the same like the way you are the way i am we started from like this empty sponge and as we're moving through life like things are being added to the sponge and we're just being like you know filled with substances and ideas and whatever so mm. you know that's that's just kind of like the spicing on right. the same on the same meal but the meal tastes different but it's essentially the same thing and that's who we are we are just all kind of just trying to survive and uh, you kind of see everyone's perspective mario thanks so much for your time i appreciate it absolutely martin loved it man thanks a lot that's it for the show thanks for listening and i hope you liked it if you enjoyed the show you can do me a huge favor hit subscribe leave a rating and a review and most of all tell someone else about the show. If you want to get in touch, send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. I'm also on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.